at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have the pleasure to have with me Dr. Eric Dristen, who is a professor in medical education at Maastricht University, and with whom I was looking forward to have this conversation for a long time. So thank you very much, Eric, for agreeing to be with us today. Uh, great for inviting me for this great podcast, Syrah. Uh, I have to admit, uh, I'm a little bit stage fright. This is my first podcast uh, appearance ever. So... Uh, I'm shaking, but also oh. very excited. I look forward to it. That's great. This is going to be an easygoing conversation. So let's just start from the beginning. So okay. I, I think I mentioned to you in, in my emails that uh, one of the goals of the podcast is just is to feature the people behind the research. Yes, we're going to be talking a little bit about what you do, but I'm more interested for listeners to know who's Eric and, and what kind of things he does outside research and all those things. So I just wanted to start with, um, the basic question of who was Eric growing up? Who was that kid and what he was curious about? I think I was an open, happy kid in a normal Dutch family, you know, a middle-class family, definitely not an academic background. So I'm the first of my family who went to university. Uh, I never expected me to work on a, to to work on a university or become a professor or things like that. So um, uh, that actually that happens just by the way, by, by sheer chance, I think. And uh, it was not uh, something that was destined for me. Mm -hmm. So was there a topic or something that was really attractive to you when you, gro you were growing up that kind of stays with you all the way? I think... Uh, one of the things, uh, I was not the handsome boy that was good in sports. I was the one who was reading Donald Duck or uh, Mickey Mouse comic okay. books or uh, books. And um, so I think that is one of the characteristics that maybe helped to become a scientist. Uh, so I, I, I love to read and I, I was quite... Uh, fanatic. So if I was interested in first, for example, First Nation people in uh, North America, I looked up everything about it in the library. Or oh, wow. if I was interested in birds, I, I was the one who bought a book and went to the library and, you know, things like that. Okay. Um, well, on that topic, I remember when you and I shared uh, the facilitation of a writing master class on Maastricht mm -hmm. with, with Lorelai and Mark and Chris. And you brought a book from Garcia Marquez. Uh, for the listeners, Garcia Marquez is one of the big writers from Colombia. And I was so surprised that you knew so much about Latin American literature. And I have always wanted to ask you, where did it come from? When did it start? And what's the connection between your Dutch background and Latin American literature? Uh, in general, I like to read, so I, I read a lot. Now, for example, in this pandemic, and I like to travel, and um, uh, with reading, 
yeah, authors from different cultures than, than where I grew up in, the, in Europe, Northern Europe. Uh, you, you enter worlds that are uh, normally not accessible. And I love Colombia. I've been there, I think, 13 years ago. I don't speak Spanish, so it was quite an adventure and I loved it. And uh, um, so, and I love Gabriel Garcia Marquez, his literature is, yeah. And also, but also, for example, is uh, I think I brought Life to Tell a Tale, his memoirs, his first part. Um, he, uh, he died before he could finish the rest, but uh, um, he is just, he's a, not only a great, uh, writer, but he's also a very interesting character himself. Yes. Right. And, and, yeah. And, and Colombia has my interest. Like, for example, I, this pandemic, I read quite some books about travel books, and I read a book by Wade Davis. It's Magdalena, the River of Dreams. It's yeah. about Magdalena River. And then after that, I read The General and His Labyrinth. So, you know, by you can travel a bit from your chair at home. Yes. Oh yeah, uh, I read that too. Actually, during the pandemic, really? so coincidental, so good. Okay. So, so nice book, many... isn't it? Pardon? It's a it's a lovely book. That, yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. How many books from Garcia Marquez did you read? I think I read most of his novels. Wow. And I read his memoirs and a biography about Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Wow, that's impressive. We, we have to read them, not all of them, but um, the, the key ones in, in high school. But I, was, I haven't met someone outside Colombia who will so, were so passionate about that. Okay, I have a nice story about this. I had, just for the pandemic, I had to give her uh, a lecture at a conference, big conference in uh, Cartagena, the hometown of Gabriel Masia Cassés. And I, I started with a picture, a beautiful picture of Gabriel Cassimarques, and I just played. And this is it. Does anybody know who is this? And the people loved it. They, they yelled, of course we know him. <laughs> so it's, it's our like, only Nobel Prize <laughs> winner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Dutch, the Dutch uh, you, have, you have more than the Dutch uh, Nobel Prize uh, uh, laureates for literature. For literature. In the 11th, we have none. Oh, so, okay. Okay. So we, we're very proud of that. We have another uh, laureate, but Garcia Marquez was like for us growing up because he just is part of what you learn in school. So it's so interesting. Yeah. But let's talk a little bit about uh, your arrival to research. Like what I know you said in your family, you're the first one to get into this, this research. But when yes. did you know that research was the thing that you wanted to do for your for living, for a living? Uh, yeah, um, I still can't live from research only. You know, in Maastricht, you have to teach and do administrative work too. So uh, if I say I can live from research, I have a problem with my dean of my, uh, of <laughs> <Yeah>. my family. <laughs> but uh, now I think that was quite late in my career. I started from practice. I saw I was... Uh, I started in 1994 in Maastricht as an assessment specialist. So I did assessment work. And it was only uh, by writing a book, a practical book with Case from the Floten. He worked at the medical school. I worked at the law school at that time that I thought, okay, there's a world of science behind 
uh, education and I could do this science myself. Actually, it was, I think, Case from the flood and who opened the research door for me. Yeah. Okay. So it was Case who actually brought you into medical education research into this community. Yes. 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 Actually, uh, he he asked if he said if you survive the lawyers as an educationalist, you can help me to uh, implement portfolios with my doctors. So that's how I ended up in medical education. Okay. Yeah. And out of curiosity, how has been the, the evolution of medical education research in the Netherlands? What's this, the history behind it? Oh, that goes quite some time back. Um, there's, I think, the NVMO, that's the Netherlands Society for Medical Education, has played an, an important role. As a background, we have eight medical schools in the Netherlands. We are a small country. And uh, the, the advantage of this is that there has been a collaboration already for more than 15 years between the medical schools and um, to study and to innovate medical education. And Maastricht was the eighth medical school, so we are the youngest. Oh. And we were only allowed to start a medical school in Maastricht if we would do it in a different way. So if we would educate healthcare professionals in a different way than uh, the traditional lecture-based uh, form. And with that, we were the second school who introduced problem-based learning. And with implementing that, we studied it. We did research to that because all the other medical schools in the Netherlands says, your doctors will lack knowledge. They will don't have good skills. Maybe they can talk smoothly, but they are not uh, good doctors. So from the start, we did research but maybe the uh, incentive to do research was to justify yourself to prove that we would were capable to uh, educate good doctors and even maybe better doctors than the other ones did and but that didn't end up in this atmosphere of competition but it actually lead to a lot of collaboration between medical schools okay yeah. okay so in that transition uh, when you're moving into being an educational assessment specialist, I, I believe, yes. to doing the research and becoming part of the medical education research community. What was something surprising or something that you didn't expect that you encounter in, in that transition? Um, I know if what I've, I've, been, I've a background as a psychometrist. So um, then I got involved in portfolios. Okay. And there was a friction between uh, the idea of portfolios, it's personal, it uh, should give space to differences between students, things like that, a very open way of assessing or uh, guiding students. And the way I thought about assessment, my theories about assessments. And uh, the, the literature on portfolio assessment was devastating. You know, they had, uh, in that time, in the state of Vermont, they had implemented uh, portfolio assessment on primary schools, and the outcomes were just horrible. So I had started to assess our students, first-year medical students, with a portfolio, but all the evidence was against was pro the learning, but problematic regarding assessment. 
and I had a lot of uh, sleepless nights. I thought, how did something is wrong with this? And then um, my big surprise was I, I had to look that I worked in a community with other scholars and uh, that I could uh, discuss this problem with other people. So I went, for example, to Dundee, um, where uh, Detman Mir, Benjamin Friedman was there and Ronald Harden and um, also David Snedden. He was a family medicine uh, doctor there. And I discussed it with them, but there was no solution. They said, yeah, it's just the way we assess. We make a checklist and we calculate a score and that's how we assess portfolios. That's how we do it in Dundee. So that's how it's done everywhere. And I thought, yeah, yeah, maybe we should do it in Maastricht, but maybe not. And then I know David Snedden, he was a very kind man. He brought me to the airport for to fly back home. And he made a remark in the car. He said, Eric, I understand your feeling. And he had written a, an article, measure, Portfolios Measuring the Unmeasurable. You see, we are trying to measure the unmeasurable, he said. But I've read a commentary by somebody in nurse education, and she was thinking about qualitative research as a solution for portfolios assessment. So when I came back in, in uh, Maastricht, everything fell together. I, I, I found the commentary and uh, that woman said, okay, we use criteria for quantitative research at psychometrics, but doesn't work for portfolios. Portfolios are more a qualitative uh, instruments. Uh, and we, sh and you sh we should use uh, the criteria and the instruments of qualitative research to measure something. And then it was jaw-dropping. And then a new world, of, I had really a aha moment. I thought that could be the solution. So we did it in that way. And we wrote that up. We both implemented in practice and it worked extremely well. I think the procedure hasn't changed the past 20 years. We still assess those students with the procedure we developed then. And we have written it up. And uh, yeah, people have taken over that message uh, worldwide. So I think that was one of the, my most uh, important aha moment in my scientific career. Oh, that is so interesting. And coming from a person who is a psychometrician and mm -hmm. then landing into the qualitative world, Yes. Let's repeat the question. What, what was so surprising or unexpected or even like beautifully gratifying to delve into those waters of qualitative research? And who did you talk to to learn? Ooh, yeah, I, 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 it's really nice that we are a community. So and most people are happy to talk with you. So uh, I always have Two, thing, two things, I have people and literature. So I read a lot, I read a lot, you know, Glaser and Strauss, that kind of literature about qualitative research. But I also went to people, Jan Vertartwijk, he's a professor in teacher education, or um, yeah, your, your colleague Lorelei Lingard or Chris Watling. I had to look uh, that I had, had to work with them. So that were natural sources to discuss qualitative research uh, with them. Yeah. But also, I, another thing, the first paper that I wrote, it was really, I think it was 2003, so quite some time ago, there was an anonymous 
reviewer who gives, we actually, we wrote, I think when I look now back, we wrote a clumsy paper to medical education, the journal, but we got good back so many good tips and uh, good feedback that I think in the end it become uh, quite a reasonable um, article about how can we use apply criteria for qualitative research to assessment. Uh, so I never know who that person was, but I'm still very grateful of her or his uh, help. So yeah, this was, that was also very helpful. Oh, that's interesting. Now talking about journals, you created or you're the main editor for Perspectives on Medical Education. Yes. When did this idea of creating a, another journal start and, and why? What was the motivation behind it? Actually, the, the journal is one of the reasons that the Medical Education Society in the Netherlands flourishes for almost 50 years, because it used to be the Dutch Journal of Medical Education, okay. but the world of science changed. So no, people didn't write uh, Dutch uh, scientific articles in the Netherlands in the Dutch language. So uh, it was transformed to an English language journal. But at that moment, uh, at the moment that I became an editor, uh, not a lot of people outside of the Netherlands knew the journal. I think nobody outside of the Netherlands knew this journal. So it, it was my task to make it an international uh, journal and put it on the international stage. And actually I did that to, by inviting a person that I knew well from, and that were well known in the field to, to uh, become an editor for the journal. That really helped. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I was reading your website and yes. something that got my eye, which I personally didn't know, was your interest in education across different cultures. Yes. And, and I wanted to know if you can share some highlights of what you have learned about it, and then I'll follow up with another question. Um, yes. And actually, that, that's again, it's a lot of uh, serendipity, luck, chance uh, that I uh, that I have this part of, it's one of my hobbies, research hobbies. Okay. And uh, actually, uh, Janneke, uh, Frambach, she, uh, you know, uh, you're, you know her. She's actually the star in our uh, internationalization research, and she came to me because her mother had said to a colleague of mine um, that she wants to search for a job, and my colleague had said she should apply to Eric. Eric would be a good colleague for her. So she came to to me and said, "I want to do a practical job." And then I saw her CV and to learn more about her and thought she would be an ideal candidate to do a PhD on internationalization and problem-based learning. So, and what I learned from her PhD and later PhD students like Dominique Waterfall or Emmeline Browers that I did together with uh, Janneke is um, that actually the, uh, the, yeah, what we learned is that culture influences education, but education also influences culture, and that's it's really that's really nice to see. It also gives hope, you know, the influence of education on the, on our students. And um, we, for example, with Janneke, we studied uh, PBL problem-based learning in different cultures, and also in cultures more collective cultures. So you said, yeah. Our students are not that individualized, and uh, but also in these cultures, students 
said we become more independent we, towards uh, literature and to be critical towards what's published or towards theories, things like that. So I think that's that's really important. That gives hope yeah. for the future, I think. But it's also nice to see that uh, if you the importance of context. So if you implement the same method in different cultures, that the, that the way the processes are different, maybe the outcomes not, but the way it has been has been done is different. Right. Uh, uh, the reason I wanted to ask is because this morning I, I, yeah. sorry, I was actually listening to a podcast about science and politics and how the two of them cannot be detached. So it, it just strikes me that culture is part of politics, of course. Yeah. Uh, and I was also wondering, now that you have learned that, uh, how it has translated to your collaborations with people outside the Netherlands, particularly people who don't speak Dutch. Like, how how has been your process of agreeing and negotiating collaborations? Because I personally found it a pretty tough transition coming from a non-English speaking background to collaborate with people in English. Yes, yes, I, I, I understand what you mean and I can imagine your experiences. Um, and still, for example, uh, Canadian people for Dutch people, are, Dutch people are quite rude and straightforward, and Canadian uh, uh, people are more, in my, in Dutch opinion, more uh, polite, and they do they pack their messages, and they hatch a little bit more, and it's a sign of respect. But in the Netherlands, this is seen as not being open and uh, not being honest. That's where really lessons that I should wrap and hatch my messages too. Otherwise, I give a signal that I'm not, that I don't respect the other one. And um, yeah, I can see when we negotiate uh, with, uh, with people in other cultures that yeah, things sometimes go, uh, not, go not very well, to say the least. Yes, I completely recognize. And yeah, it's a struggle. I think. Yeah. Is there one lesson that you have learned in your experiences that you thought, okay, this is something that I have to keep remembering every time I engage in those collaborations? Yeah, yeah. I, I did a, I did a quite a good, uh, an, an, at the Coot Institute, a course of English for, uh, for Dutch people. That, that course was, was a, a weak, very intense course in English. And I think half of the time I was about culture and not about grammar or things like that. So I was surprised. But uh, And the teachers were non-Dutch. They were all from native English speakers countries. And what they really made clear to me is, okay, if I want, for example, with you to maybe start a PhD project or something else, I go, I maybe ask, how is life? Have you been affected by the pandemic? Okay. Let's do business. And uh, I have with, become aware that doesn't work for every culture. Or actually, most culture doesn't work like that. You first have to, be, uh, to build a kind of report to get to know each other and then go to business, which makes sense, of course. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're all humans, right? So if you don't yes. touch at a personal level, it's very hard. So yes. that's a good one. Yeah. I wanted also to know, 
like in addition to the portfolio seems to be like a big highlight in your career. Yes. And now that you are well into your career in the senior position of a scientist, um, what would be an unexpected but very gratifying moment that you can remember today? Oh, uh, no, what very unexpected moment was, um, I told you about the assessment that applying qualitative criteria. So th that was a huge success. And we, I had luck because we had a special audit from a national institute for higher education because they didn't trust us uh, assessing students with portfolios. And the outcome was very positive. So I was quite happy and thought, oh, we're doing well. And then the second year, I, I know half halfway the year, I entered a lecture hall full of uh, medical students, second year medical students. So there are in the Netherlands, in Maastricht, there are 340 students in a lecture hall. And they all booed and yelled about me because I was introduced as the man of the portfolio. Mm -hmm. So what had worked really well in the first year didn't work at all in the second year. Huh. And that was a big surprise. And uh, of course, I was shocked and the experience was a little bit frightening and not a very pleasant experience, but it was scientifically uh, satisfying because of what I could, I could frame this as a failure, uh -huh. uh, made me an, ask all kinds of questions. Why does the portfolio sometimes work and sometimes doesn't work? So I did some studies in Maastricht. I interviewed students and uh, teachers. Um, in that year and actually we learned more about portfolios when it also didn't work than in the first year we I had done a study when everything went fine okay then I got some influence but I learned much more in the moment the portfolio failed yeah. so that was also a big aha moment and this also sparked uh, my first literature review form of literature review with the title why do portfolio work or not okay. so that was really one of uh yeah in hindsight a gratifying moment not okay. i think definitely not yeah. oh i can imagine because it opened up a whole new direction for research and new questions yeah yeah i guess it's, it's also like i'm i'm impressed by your ability to even though of course you were shocked and not and frightened you were still open to accept the the failure and use the failure as an opportunity yes. have you been like that all the time or it was something that you learned from someone oh that's a good question uh i think yeah, my parents don't live anymore. But what I know from uh, what I heard, I've always been a very open personality. Yeah. So my mother was that when you know in the primary school, you sit in a circle as children and tell what happens. I was the, the, uh, the kid who told that his father got a fine because he drove to the red light, you know, traffic oh. light, things like that. So I've always been uh, an open personality. I think that helped. Okay. Yes. And I also maybe because I'm not from an academic background, so I was, I was not afraid uh, to fail. I think that helped too. There was not that much pressure. And I and it's also um, 
I had a problematic school career, so I was quite critical at school. And um, so I'm quite aware that our uh, theoretical educational models in practice couldn't work. Hmm. That's actually, if you ask what makes you curious, what, uh, how do you, uh, where do you find your question? It's often that I wonder, okay, programmatic assessment, does it work? And why? And does it not work? Or in terms of professional activities, hmm. is it an ideal model? Is it an utopia? Or eh, questions like that. Or the same with portfolios. So this, these are, yeah, I, of, I often make comparisons with communism. Oh. In theory, a very good model. Yeah. But uh, is practice more difficult? Or with capitalism, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So big systems, either political, political or educational, do they work and how do they work and why do they don't work and in which context, things like that. Oh, that's, that's an interesting pattern. Thank you for sharing. So we have a couple more questions okay. We're about to end the, the episode. I'm curious, besides Latin American literature and reading, yes. what does Eric do outside research and academia and teaching that gets you really passionate about? Uh, like many middle-aged men, I, I, I ride a racing bike, especially oh. in the Netherlands. It's very popular. And it's very good for thinking, too. So a lot of papers that I write or lectures, I, 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 the words and sentences come in my mind during, when I ride a racing bike. Uh, I like to cook and to eat. So I yeah. cook and do a lot of cooking. And like many people in the pandemic, I, do, uh, my, uh, I bake my own bread, things like that. And I like to meet friends and family. I have four children, so that is also something that keeps you off the street. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I imagine. Yeah. Yes. So I remember you really like food, and uh, and I um, I'm curious to know, like, do you prefer a particular kind of food from a particular culture, or are you more curious about trying out anything? Yeah. Now. I like from different regions, but I think my favorite is Indonesian food. Okay. So actually as a student, I couldn't cook at all. And uh, I did an internship at a power plant and there was a woman who came from Indonesia and she taught me all kinds of family recipes, recipes. So I, and, and then I did a second internship at a bank, big big bank, and there was another woman of from Indonesia, and she taught me more recipes. So that's I, I learned um, as a student to cook Indonesia during internships, which we are not about cooking, of course, to internships. Yes. Okay, talking about serendipity, right? <laughs> so, in terms of your work, um, what is your next curiosity? What are you working now, and what are you? going or heading towards in your work yes in the end yeah um i i during my career i met uh, lauren macchio and tony artino i don't know if you know them they're both based in washington yeah. and uh, they i i do with them meta research so about the quality of our research mm-hmm. so uh, it started with uh, responsible research co- conduct, but we now do also bibliometric studies. Uh, so that's something I want to do more in the future. It's a good fun to do it with them. And I think it's an important uh, 
uh, yeah, new uh, topic for, and especially for the development of our field, very important. So that's one thing. Yeah, what I already told you, um, I, my background is assessment and we now use assessment as a kind of teacher. Yeah, how can we motivate or teach students or residents, trainees with uh, more formative assessment? Does that work? Yeah. Or should we teach instead of assessing people? I think that are uh, questions that keep me busy at the moment. Right. Uh, does the test for professional activity work or not? And how does it work? That's our questions. And yeah, knowledge translation, we know quite a lot, but uh, how can we let this knowledge land in the classrooms or in the work floors? Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge challenge for the coming years. So these are the There is a variety of topics in there. Thanks for sharing. Good. Okay, Eric, our final question, which I'm always curious about, is to know what people would have become if they wouldn't go into academia or research? In your case, what would have that been? Well, that's an easy question to answer for me. A cook, a chef. Great. I even have a dream now uh, for the future when I retire. My youngest son is trained to become a professional chef. Awesome. But I hope that he starts this hip lunchroom with snacks from <laughs> Indonesia and home homemade bread and uh, with an international community of students who come as a customer and work there and uh, me as the old professor who helps him. That I would love that for the future. Ha have you pitched the idea to him already? No, no, he doesn't know. Don't, oh. I don't hope he listened to the uh, podcast because you don't <laughs> want his old father in his lunchroom if he starts one. You want him to start and then invite you. So yes. we better keep the podcast away from him. So yeah. doesn't ruin the idea. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. That was this was really great talking to you. I appreciate you participating. Okay, it was good fun, my first podcast with you. Perfect. Thank you a lot for inviting me. Good. Thank you everyone for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.